and welcome to Brain for Business, your podcast for all things brain, behavioral and organizational sciences. It's great to have you with us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie, and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback, or even questions that you might have. Today, we stand at the precipice of not one, but three converging and potentially catastrophic long-term trends, climate change, globalization, and growing inequality. On their own, each of these makes the occasional crisis worse. We might see a more destructive hurricane, a more widespread financial meltdown, or longer or more violent civil unrest. Together, though, these trends magnify challenges. The COVID-19 pandemic, for example, was not just a health crisis, but an economic and political one as well. These are not my words, but rather those of our guest today on the Brain for Business podcast, John Katsos. John Katsos is an Associate Professor of Business Law, Business Ethics and Social Responsibility at the American University of Sharjah in the United Arab Emirates and a Research Affiliate at Queen's University, Belfast. As a scholar, he has published dozens of academic and media articles as well as reports for boards and international organizations. He has undertaken fieldwork in Iraq, Lebanon, Cyprus, Syria, Sri Lanka and Hong Kong and is considered one of the world's leading researchers on business in crisis zones. As an educator, John teaches undergraduate, graduate, and executive students in the United States, Europe, the Middle East, and Africa on how to manage more ethical and sustainable organizations for a better world. John, welcome to Brain for Business. Thanks so much, Lord. Thanks for having me. So maybe tell us, why is the world so volatile right now? Yeah, I mean, I think similar to the quote that you pulled out, it's really volatile because we have these converging trends. So if we take each in a row, climate change and social inequality mean that in particular areas, you're going to have worse natural disasters that are just exacerbated by the environmental uh, situation that's going on. Um, and social inequalities mean that it's going to hit people who are already on the negative end of the income scale or on the negative end of social structures even worse than it would normally. And then globalization means that those problems spread very rapidly into places that you wouldn't normally expect. So COVID's a nice example. In, in the past, right, even a highly infectious disease may not have spread quite as quickly as COVID was able to. Um, but because of rising temperatures and because of inequalities and because of globalization, it was able to spread much faster um, than it would have otherwise. And it, it also had much wider impacts than it might have otherwise. So in the past, you might have been able to shut down a country. Uh, I think what we've learned from COVID is you really can't shut more or less anywhere down. Um, there's very few countries on Earth, maybe North Korea being the one exception, that you could really shut down um, and stop people from entering and exiting without having massive... Um, political, social, economic impacts. So what we saw is an attempt to use pre-volatility solutions um, for a problem that you simply can't do that for. And I think governments struggled a little bit at first, but then finally figured out that, that they had to use different tools um, for, for these particular types of crises. And it's interesting you mentioned there that 
perhaps North Korea, perhaps might be the only country that could uh, really isolate itself, because we did see some countries try to do that. New Zealand, Australia, for example, tried to do it. And uh, I recall reading an article by the uh, economist Joshua Gantz at the University of Toronto, where he, he said that really Australia, he is Australian, was following a self-defeating policy, because it, it's impossible to isolate yourself fully from the world. And I think that's what we're seeing in China right now. So China had had probably one of the strictest zero COVID policies in the world. And then at some point, the society is unwilling to accept being cut off from itself, but also from the world for long periods of time. Simply opening up immediately is going to cause catastrophic harm as well. So I think the, the societies and the businesses that were able to be most successful in responding were the ones that were able to adjust really quickly to see that what they thought might work was not going to work um, and to make sure that as they progressed they kept learning so so a lot of countries but also a lot of organizations kept using the same policies hoping for different results which is a, a sort of a variation on the definition of insanity and and the ones that were able to do well out of the crisis were the ones who were able to figure out pretty quickly what was and wasn't working and then stick with it double down on what was working and then try new things and be willing to to experiment. The the key trends that uh, were called out in in your quote there at the beginning, climate change, globalization, growing inequality, they're obviously very long-term trends going on for decades, if not perhaps even centuries. The question I'm, I guess I'm curious about then is how have the, the events of, say, 2022, now we're in 2023, but the events of 22, the war in Ukraine, uh, cost of living crises, shortages of, of things like grain and, and, and basic staples, as well as, uh, at least in a European context, the ongoing impact of Brexit. How have these trends impacted on organisations as well? I, I think same, same as before with COVID, what we saw is things that might have been easier to address in isolation before, now it's impossible. So it's impossible to distinguish between crisis and crisis. So we went from COVID more or less directly into a supply chain crisis, which then led to an inflationary crisis, which then led into the war in Ukraine. Right? And it's not necessarily that any of these are, are um, causing the other. It's simply that as an organization, the mindset that, okay, there's a crisis, we'll deal with it, and then we'll move on and return to normal this is normal. Um, we're, not, we're not going away. Um, we're not going to change. We're not going to go back to some sort of normal environment that doesn't involve a massive macro crisis. So if you know that ahead of time as an organization, you can begin to start changing the way that you approach your business. So it's very difficult, for, uh, for example, if you have large cash reserves, um, the tendency is to, to sit on those cash reserves and wait for a rainy day or to use it for accounting purposes. And really what you may want to do is start looking at opportunities when crisis arrives to use those cash reserves to make sure that your business becomes more resilient. So what we're seeing some organizations do is, is figure that out, um, whereas other organizations are reacting to the current, um, what looks like an economic um, decline by firing people, right? So by letting people go. So we saw this with tech companies that have tens of billions of dollars in cash reserves are letting go five, 10% of their workforce. The truth is that in a crisis setting, you're gonna need those people and you're gonna need extra capacity. 
So what companies, uh, some companies learned this lesson, others did not. You always need extra capacity in crisis because in crisis you're gonna have people who are having to deal with situations that are not necessarily within their job portfolio. You may need more people in one place than you might have anticipated because the crisis is not what you expect. Um, almost by definition, uh, it's, it's never gonna be something that you can fully prepare for, so you need extra people. And you need extra people at a time when extra people might not be available. So, so layoffs and things like that don't actually help in these settings. Having more people um, helps. So that's one way in which organizations are impacted. So if you were, for example, invited to speak to someone like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or Satya Nadella at Microsoft or the Collison brothers at Stripe, what then would you be saying to them? Don't lay off your people actually invest in your organization yeah absolutely you with with uh, so in general there's reasons to keep on extra capacity but when you have a constant crisis setting and when you have so much volatility it's better served to keep those people on if you have them and then retool them for other things so spend the money on repositioning them for other areas of the business even if you don't know what their immediate use would be because you're gonna need them. Um, so what we saw post-COVID is, is real difficulty in filling positions, uh, all types of positions, right from the bottom all the way up. And part of that was because people had laid off workers because uh, they didn't have the business. The ones that were able to transition really quickly were the ones that had maintained capacity, eaten the loss, uh, but made sure that they were gonna make, they understood that they would make that money back later. So a nice example is in the rental car industry, there were lots of cars, there were lots of car company companies that shed stock. Um, so they, they got rid of a lot of their cars in order to make sure that they could, they could make their profit margins. And then once COVID restrictions were lifted, many of them didn't have enough cars. And so you got into this bizarre situation where the car rental companies are charging a lot. Um, they might be making some of the money back, but they don't even have enough cars to rent out to people. And when they tried to go back to the secondary market to purchase new cars, there weren't any cars available, so they couldn't even increase their, their stock. So the companies that ended up doing really well within the rental car industry were the ones that maintained their stock in spite of the difficulties of doing so and, and then had you know, lots of extra cars. They were able to take market share from, from other companies very easily. And it's an interesting example you give there because if you think about the crisis, the supply chain crisis, which has now emerged, uh, I was just listening this morning to a discussion on the radio saying that uh, at least here in Ireland, where, where, where we are at the moment, where I'm based, it's now a 14-month wait time for receiving a new car. Uh, and that the dealers can't even tell you what your final purchase price will be because they don't know themselves. So you put down a deposit for a car that's going to come at some time in the future for an amount that nobody knows. So all of those trends have obviously impacted the rental car companies in so many negative ways that couldn't have been foreseen. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it makes certain companies' decisions from five years ago that looked silly at the time. Um, so in the car industry, Volvo made a decision to really commit to a service-based model. It makes those look brilliant and prescient, but really what they saw was the difficulties in getting large-scale manufactured anything, right? whether it's cars, whether it's dishwashers, whatever you have that involves chips and, and uh, manufacturing that requires the vehicle or the product to move from place to place, is going to be put under threat by these types of crises. And no one has the capability at this point. Most organizations, I won't say no one, but most organizations don't have the capability to do all those things in-house and to do them in one place. So what you're getting into is a situation where you have to really predict out based on very little foreknowledge 
what the world might look like. And all we can say is it will be more crisis ridden. There will be more crises, there will be more volatility. So if you know there will be more volatility, but you don't know what that will look like for your company, it's about being prepared in ways that make sense. Um, so for Volvo, that meant really switching to the service model where they'd have cars available, but they would charge based on the service and they'd start modifying some of the vehicles so they could turn on and off services. Um, and they've been one of the companies that's been able to, to really do better um, than they might have otherwise had they stuck with the kind of the older model of, of being able to push the cars out every year um, with a new model. And it strikes me as well as you're talking there that it's almost on the one hand sad but, but also ironic that this has come about because there was a body of research that emerged from the global financial crisis of 2008 to 2010, 11, however you want to date it, which indicated that those organizations which continued to invest in themselves and didn't shed all their stuff actually emerged stronger, better, and were able to innovate through that crisis. It seems almost obvious, right? So we're talking about it now, and it seems almost obvious that, okay, if there's a downturn of any kind, if there's a difficulty, you should invest in yourself and get better. People know this, right? So why do, why does, um, why do enrollments go up at graduate educational institutions during economic crises? Because yes, people lose their jobs, sure, but then they often look at it as an opportunity to build themselves up, to educate themselves, to do better. The same applies to companies. So if you're an organization and you're seeing a difficult time, the answer is not cutting your workforce. The answer is saying, okay, we may not be profitable this year, but hey, nobody's profitable this year, uh, and that's okay. We need to set ourselves up for future success by making sure we're investing in the people we have now instead of using it as an excuse um, to cut fat, uh, which is what a lot of, uh, I think a lot of the management focus in organizations when there's, particularly when there's an economic downturn is where can we cut costs? And I think that's the wrong mindset. I think the mindset that will enable organizations to succeed in spite of crisis are the ones where we're really focused on how do we use economic recessions, how do we use crises as an opportunity to grow. That's a very different mindset. Um, and you have to really have organizational buy-in for that. So it starts at the leadership level, right? It starts at the C-suite where people have to make sure that they've really communicated to the entire organization. We're not looking to cut costs. We're looking to see how we can grow and do better. So we don't want to fire people, but we understand that the areas where some of them are in are not going to be the areas once we emerge out of the crisis um, or once we move to the next crisis. So we, we need to retool, retool those people. We need to spend money on developing them. We need to, to make sure that we're prepared for the future. And to be clear, you're not saying that organizations, businesses shouldn't be financially prudent when times are tough, but rather they shouldn't be financially rash in terms of how they approach things. Exactly right. Yeah, I don't think cutting costs for the sake of cutting costs makes any sense in a crisis setting if you're only doing it to meet a short-term financial target. If you really need to get rid of whole businesses, okay, I mean, by all means, get rid of whole businesses, but make sure that it makes sense strategically, and that means that it makes sense for future crises. If you're, if you're just getting rid of it because it costs you money, um, yeah, things cost money. Good things cost money. That's that's life. Um, but especially education and development cost money. So so one of the reasons why universities have uh, try to have such good partnerships with with organizations is because usually those organizations understand that it's valuable, but it's expensive, and so you often have to have a separate set of professionals to help. I'm conscious that in in a number of your your papers 
and indeed through the conversation so far, you haven't used the, uh, the, the acronym VUCA, which uh, a lot of people who've done management development courses, MBAs, whatever, would be familiar with. It stands for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Is that a conscious thing? Is that because you feel the, the concept of VUCA is maybe a bit outdated, or do you feel there are better ways of viewing things? Yeah, it's, it's definitely conscious. Part of it is that I don't like acronyms or I try to avoid acronyms as much as I can. Um, part of it is also, I think it's outdated in the sense that when we talk about all of those issues independently, we often are, are anyway implicitly talking about the one, talking about them interdependently. So I, I like the, the idea that they're all connected. Um, what I don't like is what it maybe leaves out. And so I'm a, at the end of the day, I'm a conflict zone researcher, right? I, I deal with conflict zones. So the idea of categorizing certain areas or certain practices as being volatile, to me, tags certain places or certain types of industries or, or certain things in a negative light that I don't think is necessary. I think we have to start thinking about everywhere as being crisis affected, everywhere as being volatile. So if everything is VUCA, then nothing is VUCA, which is one of the reasons I don't, I try not to use the term quite as much because I don't want us to... I, especially I don't want CEOs and leaders of companies to think of volatility as an over there problem. It's our problem. It's everybody's problem. Um, it's, and it's going to continue to be everybody's problem going forward. The, the time of macro certainty and low volatility is over for the immediate future. And so we have to start thinking about each of our contexts as being places that are subject to high degrees of volatility where there's going to be unknown crises that we're going to have to face. I, I want to go back to, to something that you mentioned earlier on. You were saying that you know we can't expect that things are going to go back to normal. Could, could it actually be, if you to flip that around, could it actually be that we are now returning to normal? That, that sort of uh, false, perhaps, sense of stability that emerged, um, maybe it was, say, after World War II, uh, maybe it was after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, etc. Maybe that was actually the, the unreality, and now this is normality. This is the reality of human existence. I think so. I mean, so those examples you gave are great because they were, they were, those were crises for some people, but they weren't crises for other people. And I think that's really where the big difference is. So the, the fall of the Berlin Wall wasn't a crisis for the U.S., or for large parts of Western Europe, but it was a crisis for Germany. Um, they had to figure out how to integrate uh, an entirely new population, right? They had to figure out how to integrate this place that had been subject to all sorts of different norms for a period of time. So for them, it was a crisis. And I think that's where the globalization component is so key, is what we see, I think what we're seeing now is that there isn't anywhere untouched by difficulty. So if there's a difficulty in one place, it's going to cause difficulties elsewhere because we're so interconnected. And there's no going back. Um, I know a lot of places are trying to retrench. They're trying to be more local. They're trying to figure out ways to make themselves crisis-proof by trying to separate themselves out from the rest of the world. And that's not going to work. Um, it's, it's going to affect them anyway because there is no way to fully cut yourself off. So when we're talking about things like... Um, trying to, for instance, bring back manufacturing capacity locally, that can be great, um, both because we're bringing back local jobs, but also because we're actually connecting ourselves with, or we could be connecting ourselves with the global economy in important ways. We're actually building up more resilience by having more options. But if we're doing it as, uh, as a way to distance ourselves from the rest of the world, it, we're, we'll fail, right? In that regard, we, it won't work.
I'm conscious as well that we've uh, talked a lot about, say, business and use that term. But do you feel that the the prescriptions, the advice that that you're you're sharing would equally apply to, say, governmental bodies or even uh, non-governmental organisations that might be operating in you know difficult uh, contexts? Yeah, absolutely. This is it's really an organisational issue more than anything else. I think some organisations tend towards certain types of behaviours. So the the idea of cost cutting tends to be much more prevalent on the business side, but governments do this too. Um, governments will routinely try to, or certain types of governments, will routinely try to shed responsibilities and, and push them off of the government budget in order to make ends meet, in order to make sure that they don't have to issue more bonds or, or take on more debt in other ways. The same applies to them. right? If you know that you're going to be in a setting of constant crisis, which again, for the foreseeable future we're going to be in because of these converging trends, you have to be prepared. And you have to be prepared for something that you don't know will happen, which means you have to have extra capacity. That means extra financial capacity. That means extra uh, people capacity. That means uh, having belt and suspenders on on more or less everything. That's frustrating from a cost standpoint. Um, it can, and that's for all organizations, especially those that have uh, maybe some budgetary restrictions that others don't. So governments and non-for-profits, for instance, often have lots of restrictions placed on them by others. So a fairly typical government restriction is a government might not be able to spend more than it takes in, right? It has to have a balanced budget at the end of a quarter or the end of a year or the end of a five-year period. That makes it difficult to justify spending money on things that you don't know about, right? You don't know whether they'll happen. And so you're, you have extra resilience built into a system where you could be using that money for other very worthwhile goals. And that's really about making sure you, you know what your values are and you have focus. So if you're focused on the right things, um, as whether that's as a government, an NGO, a business, you're focused on the things that you need to be focused on. You'll ensure that you'll be spending money in the right places and building resilience where you need to. Part of that is also so that people can rely on you when things get tough. So people need to be able to rely on government when things get tough for certain things. If they can't, because the government suddenly can't provide those services, you're destroying people's lives. It's the same with organizations. People depend on organizations of all types, right? Whether you're for-profit, non-profit, or government, people depend on organizations for employment. They depend on them for necessary services. They depend on them for their internet, their electricity, whatever it might be. Building resilience in those places means you're helping people in times of crisis beforehand, right? So before that it even comes up. In, in one of your Harvard Business Review articles, you argue that organizations should take a political stand and have a political perspective on things. Now, if, if you're talking about a government, then that might perhaps be, be you know, realistic or understandable. But isn't there, though, a challenge if you were talking about a commercial business, which might be going into a particular co- country context or, or even an NGO, particularly if the political stand they're taking is actually quite distinct from that of the environment they're going into. So, for example, if you're going to a very um, strictly religious context of, of any nature and, and the, the, the business, the NGO, takes a view which is different to that. Yeah, I think, I think companies have already gotten in trouble. So in, this is probably the one piece of advice that when I do executive training, whether it's for companies or whether it's for programs run at its institutions, 
gets the most pushback from leadership because, as you said, a lot of companies want to do business in multiple places where the cultural dynamics are different. And, and there's two, I think, concerns, right? One concern is we don't want, people don't want to import their values and force them onto others. So we don't want to be at a place that is almost reenacting a colonial or imperialist notions of importing our values for for quote unquote savages who who don't know any better, right? We don't want to be reenacting those things. And then the second piece is you, you could lose out on business. So you could, if you're trying to sell something to people whose values don't align with yours, they may not buy from you because they're going to buy from the people whose values align with them. What we found in conflict contexts, I think, applies in crisis contexts. If you don't take a stand. In highly volatile situations, people tend to cluster around their political tribes anyway, which means people will assume you have a certain position, whether that's true or not. That may mean you're with people you don't agree with, a pretty, pretty substan- with pretty substantial disagreements, or it may mean that you're painted as something different from who you actually are or who you feel you are as an organization. So the message I usually give to company leaders is, this will, you will be forced to take a position no matter what. It may as well be the position you agree with. Now, it could be that that position is, is middle of the road. Hey, we neither support nor um, you know, not support a particular position. That will alienate some people. Trying to be middle of the road will alienate some people. But you can't, I mean, to use, to use your example, you can't both support certain initiatives in one, if you're a multinational, if you have, uh, if you're supporting pride initiatives and flying rainbow flags, and then trying to also sell in markets that simply reject the notion outright, you're going to be perceived as hypocritical, and then have the same problems you would have by by kind of keeping by quote unquote keeping your mouth shut. So taking the political stand means making clear to everybody what you stand for. And saying, look, you you take take it for what it is, right? So we support if you're if you have a company that's supporting pride initiatives, you need to be clear when you go into a place where you don't think that's going to be viewed very positively about that, and say, okay, well, what do I need? You know, are there things I can't say? Are there government restrictions? We still believe in this, right? We still believe in whatever the value is, but we want to make sure that we're not violating any laws. We're not pushing anything down anybody's throats. And, and ensure that we're still um, true to our values, right? So if you, if you stake out that territory and say, this is what we believe in, take it or leave it, what you'll find is that a lot of people will leave it. Some people will say, yeah, you know, I have no interest in doing business with you. For the most part, though, a lot of people will say, you know what, I appreciate that you're being honest with me. I don't agree with you, but that's okay. We can still do business. And that's really, I think, the, the, the fine line that needs to be walked by companies is to say we're still open for business for people who disagree with us, but this is where we this is where we're at. Um, you can feel free to buy our products, you can feel free to buy our services, but you need to know that we have certain red lines in terms of values, certain things that we will and will not do, and and that's who we are. Perhaps linked to that discussion of, of values, and obviously organization values is a is a much bigger conversation, and, and this would be a subset of it. In another article that uh, you also published in Harvard Business Review together with uh, Jason Micklian and Patrick McClelland, you talk about how organizations can build a culture that can withstand uh, a crisis. How important is it, do you feel, that 
organizations develop that kind of culture and what would be the key attributes of a culture that can withstand a crisis? Yeah, and so and there we, we had a great interview with Alice Lauer, who's the CEO of CTG Global, and they do work in probably the hardest places on earth. One of the ways they've been able to do it that I think companies that have been able to withstand crisis with a strong culture do is they have that values focused. It's very clear what their values are. So at CTG, one of their big values is employee protection. Right, so the, the protection of the employees is the number one issue. It's talked about constantly. It's a main focus of leadership. It's built into more or less everything they do. We want to make sure that the people we're sending out into these dangerous places are safe. Many times they're locals, right? So they're people who are from there, and they may be subject to pressures that someone from the outside wouldn't be subject to, right? So more than 90% of their employees work and live in the same locations. They're from the locations that they, they work in. What, they're, what companies that are able to withstand crisis do really well is they're able to integrate those values into every operational decision that they make, which is really tough. Um, you have to have a very clear sense from leaders about what the values are. That also means that when there's a leadership change, the companies have to be really sensitive to what the values are that the leader's bringing in. So if you have a shift in leadership, you have to ask yourself what kind of cultural and value shifts you want to effectuate in that change, if any. If none, you need to find a leader whose values align. Um, if you want to effectuate the change, you have to make sure that the new leader has a set of values that they're going to try to imbue in the rest of the organization and then allow that person the room to, to make those changes. Um, what we found is that the companies that can do that, right, they can particularly be values-based cultures, are the ones that, again, survive and thrive better in crisis settings because they know what to do. They don't have rules written about it because they don't have to. They know what the values are. So in, in CTG's case, um, they went through a really difficult time when the Taliban took over in Afghanistan, and yet um, they were able to make sure, because the focus was on employee protection, people on the ground knew what to do without being told. And that's really the key in a lot of these places where if you have a values-based culture and everybody's on board with it and people understand what that means, people ensure that they do the right thing even when they're not told, even when there's not a rule about it because they know what the values are. If you don't have a values-based culture, values will fill the gap. They just won't be ones that you choose. And so you're basically gambling that the values that people come to the job with will be positive ones. And that often doesn't happen. So very often, if you have, for instance, a very profitability-focused mindset, especially short-term profitability mindset, what will happen in those organizations is that will substitute for what we might think of as more ethical values. It will now become the de facto position. So when you don't have a rule, people will make decisions on the basis of what will be profitable for the organization. This happens in lots of for-profit institutions. Governments and NGOs tend to have less of a problem only because they tend to be set up with values in mind. So people assume, okay, you work for government, you're working with the values of that government in mind. Those take the sort of fill the spot. For-profit companies aren't usually as intentional because it takes time and it takes leadership to make sure that it's actually imbued in every aspect of the institution, particularly in hiring. So you need to make sure you bring people on and you acculturate them to the values that you have and that the people you're hiring are okay with those values. You don't want people who are going to be put in a position where ethically they don't feel comfortable with what they're doing. And it's interesting when you talk about that because it's one thing to think of an organization operating in what might traditionally have been seen as a difficult country. Uh, maybe it's, it's a very poor country. It is 
for want of a better term, volatile. Maybe there's you know military issues and coups and that kind of thing. But actually, if we bring it back to where we started and think about that impact of globalization and how different crises are impacting every country and, and organizations in every country, having those clear values and that strong culture would equally apply in, in more d- developed countries where, you know, when things happen, for example, uh, I can think of, you know, say COVID, working from home. If people are our main focus, then we need to make sure that people are okay when they're working from home. Exactly right. Yeah. So I think a nice example, one that we use in our article a few times is um, Chick-fil-A in the United States is this, uh, it's a it's a fast food company, right? It's a fast food chain. It is a competitor to McDonald's and Burger King and all of these. And their focus from the very beginning has been on imbuing what they perceive of as their own Christian values through the institution. So what does that mean? Um, that means nobody works on Sundays. Okay. That means they pay their people better than the average market rates because they want people to have living wages. Okay, so these sound like good things, but it also means they take particular positions on things like like pride events and that sort of thing that their customers are not okay with, and they've lost customers as a result. They're comfortable with that, right? They're fine with it. And through COVID, they ended up being one of the more successful stories because they didn't have mass layoffs. Um, they didn't have to let go of people. They were paying people well already, so their competitors were having to catch up. Um, but and they ended up sitting there making more uh, per store than any other fast food chain in the United States. So that that kind of values based approach, a lot of people are not comfortable with because it means that yes, you are going to have to delineate or differentiate yourself from other people who don't share those values with you. But it ends up being the thing that makes you more successful because the people who are attracted to those values will come and and be with you, and the people who are not will see the positive results of what you're doing. So I think a lot of the people who might disagree with Chick-fil-A on their stance on gay rights are still going to agree with Chick-fil-A on things like the way they treat employees. So you're able to find common ground even with people you disagree with pretty pretty substantially on other issues. This, again, I think what you end up doing is you create a, a place, uh, an organization, but also a community where you're able to have everybody withstand crisis better all because you're very clear about what you believe in. Um, and, and you're clear that you're still going to be fine operating with other people who don't believe the same things as you do. So as we start to wrap things up, you mentioned earlier that you do uh, executive education and so on. Thinking back to one of those contexts, what would be perhaps the top three pieces of advice you would give to the, the chief executive or the leadership team of an organization which is dealing with some of these crises? So I think the first thing is train your people on how to deal with them. That's that's the easy number one. There are ways that you can train managers in particular, but also line employees, to have a toolkit for dealing with crisis settings. So train your people, right? Spend the money on it. It's worth it. It'll, it'll be worth it for things you might not even be able to anticipate. The second is build redundancy into every piece of what you do. So think about what would happen if a particular person is no longer there, right? They either, they either get sick, they lose their job, they whatever. Do you have people who can step in? Think about supplying, supply redundancies. Think about all those. Again, that's one of those where I think post-COVID people really understand and appreciate. But it means looking at do you have redundancies for everything? And then the third piece of advice, and again, I, I, I would say this is the one that I get the most pushback on, is if you 
really know what your values are, you have to actually start to match up what your values are with living your values through the organization. People don't have that much impact by themselves. So there's been a big push lately for individuals to change their consumption habits, take shorter showers, recycle the plastic bottle, do all of that. The truth is, human beings individually, one of eight billion, we don't have much impact. We have, we have a very tiny impact. Where we have impact is as part of groups. So when we as groups can move together, when a whole government can move off of plastic waste, when a whole organization can move to recycling or can move to better working hours, that's gonna have much more impact than an individual making a consumption choice. And I think for, for organizations, that tends to be the hardest advice for the CEOs to hear that, yeah, look, you're gonna have to push back and you're gonna have to have fights with people about values and about what it means to be a part of certain values and not just use words that really have no meaning and can be taken in different contexts, can be taken in different ways. Professor John Katsos of the American University of Sharjah, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Thanks for having me.